Wait, wait, don't say anything worthwhile. Yeah, 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 yeah. Recording in progress. Thank you. Okay, now you can say whatever you want. Let's hear Brett's wisdom. Hi, I'm Hubert. This is Gerardo. And you are listening to the VetBomb Clinical Podcast. In this episode, we speak to specialist veterinary clinical pathologist, Dr. Brett Stone. Brett has extensive experience in both clinical pathology and histopathology. He's worked as a pathologist in Australia and the UK for over 15 years and has a special interest in cytology and immunohistochemistry. In our previous PATH episode with Dr. Rebecca Liffman, we talked about how to get the perfect cytology sample. Now, we're going to look at it. And no, you shouldn't just chuck it into one of those little blue boxes and send it on its way. You should have a look at it yourself. Tune in and hear why and how. Brett starts with some pretty basic stuff that your poor pathology lecturer probably tried very hard to teach you, but you weren't listening because you were too busy planning your weekend. And now you don't really know how to use your microscope. Well, you can use it, but chances are that you're not getting the best out of it. Don't worry, Brett will fix that with some great advice. Then we go on to some higher grade stuff, like what to look for, how to differentiate nasty from not so nasty, and how to plan your next steps, including deciding what samples you actually want to end up sending to the lab. Now, you know as well as I do that some of this stuff is not easy. For this episode, we've tried to keep it at a level that's practical. We want to help you make better decisions, not become a pathologist. But even during our chat with Brett, he started going into detail of spindle cells versus round cells and undifferentiated cells and a list of DDs and stuff that was really kind of over my head. And even if you do know the theory, it still takes a lot of practice to get good at this stuff, which is why you often end up sending it away. Hopefully, after this episode, you'll send the right stuff away and ask for the right tests. But eventually, you'll need a Brett or a Flaminia or a Rebecca to help. Which is why it's good to know that when you send your samples off to one of the labs in the SVS Pathology Network, our sponsor for this series, so that's VetPath in Western Australia and the NT, QML over here in Queensland, Vetnostics in New South Wales and the ACT, ASAP Laboratory in Victoria and South Australia and TML in Tasmania, that it will always be a specialist veterinary pathologist who looks at your samples and gives you your answers. Even blood smears from your CBC samples are reviewed by a pathologist for comment if the hematology scientist flags anything unusual. That means that it's someone who spent many years of extra study and a residency and looking at slide after slide after slide to get that good. Beyond that, the SVS network also invests heavily in ongoing training and development of the pathologists through regular attendance at local and international conferences. Remember those? where you'll usually also see a few of them presenting. And if not at conferences, then webinars and talks and even podcasts. But it's not just the pathologists who are constantly getting better. The SVS network has recently partnered with Philips to give them access to equipment that digitalizes the slides and allows them to be sent anywhere between their labs at the speed of, well, as fast as the NBN will allow. But why is this important? Like most businesses, and probably your practice, Pathology labs are very much under the pump since you know what hit the scene last year, which makes it harder and harder to get results delivered at the same speed and standard that you've come to expect from your local lab. This technology means that if your courier drops your sample off at, for example, ASAP Lab in Melbourne, but they're completely overrun, that they can just digitally whiz the slide over here to Brett at QML, and he can get the job done and get your results back to you ASAP. Get it? ASAP. ASAP Labs. Never mind. And they still have time to chat to you when you call them to discuss the results, which I hope you're doing. And maybe fill you in on some of those finer details around microscope technique 
that you missed in that lecture. Let's get back to Brett and how to turn your microscope into a highly effective weapon. Brett Stone, thank you for joining us on the Vetveld. Welcome. Pleasure. Thanks for having me along. So previously we talked to Rebecca about making our smears, good technique for making sure we get good smears. Now we're at the next step. So I've stabbed my patient four to five times in each mass and I've squeezed and I've sticky taped or repression smeared the crap out of it. But I don't just want to send it off to you because I don't want you to have all the fun. I, I want to look at it in-house. At least make sure I get a good smear, I suppose. Let's start with the very basics. How am I going to make sure that I have a good or the, the optimal viewing experience or, or asking it another way? Uh, what am I going to do that's going to make it frustrating for myself that's going to mess up my beautiful slides that I've just made? Yeah, certainly. Um, so I'll go back to Beck's topic as well, where essentially the game's often won or lost at your end before it even gets looked at. So, you know, rubbish in, rubbish out, no matter how good the pathologist or clinician is, a poor sample is going to give a suboptimal result. Mm -hmm. The next thing, when you're actually looking at the slides, it's important to, I reckon it's invaluable to definitely at least stain one in clinic, mm -hmm. even if you're going to send it to a pathologist to make sure there's cells on there. Cytology, obviously looking at cells. If there's no cells, you're on a hiding to nothing before you even start the process. So mm -hmm. I think right from the start, put the oil away would be the first thing I'll lead with, with regards to when you look at your slides and just stain them and then basically learn where to look. So basically with cytology, what we're looking for is a mono layer or a single layer of intact cells. If you make a nice preparation, some areas are going to be too thick, some areas are going to be too sparse, but in general, there'll be areas where cells are still intact because you haven't had a sort of Herculean crush or smear of the slide and you can hear them screaming as you kill them and <laughs> smear them across the slide. But essentially then on your slide, you're looking for areas where there's single layers of cells given enough space to look like they want to look like. Mm -hmm. And then that's where you go in to uh, have a look. Hoon around at sort of a lower power by four by 10 times objective to find those areas. And once you've found those areas, then go up to your by 20 by 40 magnification um, objectives and then interrogate the cells visually to you know see what you're dealing with. So that's a the first basis of where to look and how to have a look around. And while you're looking around at low power, you also get a general feel for, is everything I'm looking at in these areas? Or is there something over there that looks different to something over there on the slide? So uh, remember, cytology is one of those things where the, the, the anatomic pathologists or the histopaths have, have it easy because it's all still there in situ. What we're doing is we're reefing bits of a mass or whatever we're aiming at with our needle and syringe and then putting it on a slide and then visually trying to put Humpty back together again to see, well, okay, well, I've got a bit of that and a bit of that and a bit of that. How does that relate to what it looked like back when it was still in the animal next to its friends and in its uh, native environment? I've never thought of it like that. You just, you're basically disassembling it and unpacking it and you've got to try and build up a picture of what, what was in there. Exactly. And that's where, like you, I think you said four to five times, not 45 times, because I think you could probably excise it nearly by our <laughs> yeah, aspiration. Four, four yeah. to five times, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, the important part of that is imagine, and that's that's the important part too, is get a, get a representative sample. You want to go in from a couple of different angles because you can imagine, say I was aspirating a Christmas pudding, okay? And I went in from one side and got a bit of, this isn't my story, I actually got it from someone, but you go in from one side, you get a bit of cake okay so if i just looked at that slide my answer would be cake 
If I'm winning from a different angle, I might hit a bit of the fruit. Okay, so if I just looked at those slides or that area, my Saito answer is going to be fruit. How is if I've got a bit of cake and a bit of fruit on my slides, well, then my answer is going to be Christmas pudding. So the more representative a look at what you're aiming at you have on your slides, then the better you'll get Humpty back together again and get the right answer cytologically. All right, I like that. Where are you going to go next? Because I still want to go back to the whole smearing thing. I still struggle with no matter what people say. I put up, I get a sample on a slide, right? And then they just, they just suck themselves together and destroy themselves. Well, I think the impression smear, I think, is a misnomer to a degree where uh, you, you can feel the surface tension and it sort of pulls that top slide down, I reckon. Yeah. And then don't put any pressure. Then just use the weight of the slide and the sort of suction and then just pull them apart. And that's important because we get enough slides that, you know, they just spray the material onto the slide and they don't actually smear it. And so what you end up is... You know, it looks like someone sneezed or just snotted onto the slide and they can, they can get heaps of cells. But what I'm saying is we're looking for a monolayer mm -hmm. of cells. The cells are all just piled up on top of each other and it, it can be really hard to individually discern what they are. The other thing is when it's thick like that, it dries slower. So you get a lot of crenation and cellular crenation artifacts. So they're distorted. They're, they don't look like what they should be look like if it was a nice, you know. And the other thing is just, just be gentle with your smearing. Put your material down one end of the slide put a top slide on top gently smear and i tend to pull them parallel as opposed to leave them perpendicular because then you've got two runways to work with as opposed to one being side on and you only smear it sideways on one slide so mm. if you like landing an aircraft at the airport put it down one end and give them the whole runway to work with to actually smear it out and then air dry it quickly Again, to limit that crenation slow drying artifact. Then, okay, so you in the end, so you yeah. put it down as a crust, and then you flick it around so they're actually in parallel with each other, and yeah, yeah, perpendicular, crush, perpendicular, yeah, degrees, turn yeah. it, and then, and then oh, yeah, okay, yeah. and then essentially you've got two full slides of material on them. So yeah, and there's other techniques. You know, they say starburst, where basically you just sort of splat it on the slide, and then use your needle to push it out in different angles by by basically saying it'll be thick in the middle, but then while the time you're push it out and most textbooks will have the different sort of ways of making that sort of slide but I, I still think the best way is just with a two slides pulling apart and with the blood film type method that's a good method for if you're doing fluids like if you had say a fluid and you made a concentrated prep took off the supernatant resuspended the palate in a bit of fluid yeah. and then you basically make a slide with a blood smear technique you can either just go right to the end or you can actually stop three quarters of the way along and then just take the top slide off what you'll do is you'll end up dumping the slides in a line where you've sort of pulled up on, with that top slide so you can concentrate the cells in that area to then go and have a look at. So, Okay, you answered my questions there. Now, you said avoid the, the oil. Question, and this... The you're, not, you're, not, you're not happy about this, I see. Not at all. I've just learned a few techniques earlier this year, 20 years in, that I went, oh, oh really? It's microscope technique. That, that might be worth for other people to talk about as well. I did a stint working at, at um, Australia Zoo at the Wildlife Hospital, and that's a lot of cytology. We look at a lot of poo and a lot of stuff. But I actually learned some new microscope techniques. First off, the, the blue lens. So what's the magnification? And that's the 40. 40 times. 40, yeah. 40 times. So just to be clear, and it's obviously very basic for a lot of people, but that has to be looked at with a cover slip, yes? Exactly right. So what a lot of people will, the reason they probably go to oil is, They'll rack up 10, 20, get to their 40. Oh, it looks all blurry. Oh, I'll have to go to oil. Yeah. Now, reason, well, probably two reasons it's blurry. 
first and likely reason is they've got oil in it mm-hmm. from going to oil all the time. Mm-hmm. The second reason is that objective wants an interface between the objective and the sample. So basically it wants the refractive index and the cover slip to then give you a clear image with regards to being able to use your 40 times. So I think if you're doing that, then you're going to get more clarity at your 40 and don't go to 100. Go to 100 to look for, you know, toxoplasma, tachyzoites and bacteria if you can't see them on by 40 and things like that. So don't go to 100 routinely to look at cellularity with regards to is it neoplastic, is it malignant, benign, etc. So that was me forever is go as you say yeah. skip 40 straight to 100 under oil which is actually a new i've got to get my head o- around that because i'm so used to looking under 100 that i because i've just skipped that because i exactly like you said it was always f- frustrating one question with the 40 do you put anything on the slide yeah, before you put the cover slip on or is it just no, a dry so, slip? so the technique's called high dry so basically um you want it dried so, so basically you want to dry your sample after you make your prep stain it dry it again and then you just sit a cover slip dry on top of that dry slide and go for broke because then you can take it off then you can go to oil and then if you want to go back to 40 cover slip back on when you go back to 40 so again you've got a cover slip between the oil and your 40 times objective lens you're not going to get oil up into it so if you do have oil in your 40 times lens you need to clean that with alcohol solution. So the stuff you might use to clean glasses with and things like that. So alcohol wipes or alcohol spray with a lens cleaning cloth, something like that to get any oil that is in there out of that objective. So just hide the oil and then see how you go for a while (laughs) and then you'll find, oh, shivers, that's right. We had oil here somewhere. (laughs) But one of the vets at the zoo, she had a technique, she called the sparkle technique, where with with the blue lens, she'd put the drop of saline on the slide and her theory was that it made it really bright and really and it did i was like no that's not how you do it i actually argued with her she said look at these slides and it was very pretty like it was a much it was like a radiant slide you had much better i don't know look better have you ever come across that no no i haven't done that um i'll have to try it now um, <laughs> no, you're gonna have to try some people do do that or they can even put a drop of oil underneath the cover slip that's more to keep the cover slip on there stop it sliding off and things like that as opposed to necessarily i can't say it doesn't have any sort of benefit if I haven't tried it, but it's not something I would routinely do. No, no okay, cool. Probably if we stop this episode right there, already 80% of the audience have learned something new about the blue lens. <laughs> um, I know from many practices that nobody uses it, and I think exactly for that reason. That's excellent. So next, are we looking at our slide? You said look for the monolayer. And are we looking at cells? Are we talking about what are we actually looking for, Brett? Yeah, so that's a good idea. So essentially we... The first question, well, one, do I have an adequate sample? So let's, yep, we do. If we don't, the animal's still in the room or in the clinic, go back and get some more. Okay. Mm-hmm. So and that's where, even if it's going to go to a lab, stain A slide to make sure, do I have, I don't know what the hell I'm looking at, but there's cells on there. So someone who does will be able to give me an answer as opposed to all the cells are ruptured or there's no cells. Okay. I'll go get some more. If you are sending to the lab, also send unstained slides. If you can, try not to stain them all. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we use different stains to what you would be using routinely in clinic, if quick, and they stain things in a different way. So mast cell granules, for instance, stain better by our right stain or right EMSA type stains that we use in the lab. Nucleoli, chromatin, nu- nuclear detail stains better with those sorts of stains. So we, we want to use those stains when they come to us, and it's difficult if they've all been stained. I often pick the best looking slide, not someone that I stain. 
Yeah, and all the other ones are rubbish. They're the ones you wince than you guys. Yeah. <laughs> and then I've got to relook at your good slide, bad stains um, with preparation. All the, all the div quick grit all over it. Yeah. And stuff. Yeah. And usually covered in oil. Yeah. yeah. When, when it comes to that. So I'm already over it before I even turn my microscope on. So, okay. So this is pretty much the thought process where I'm looking at a slide, every, every single slide. Okay. Yeah. We've got cells. First question, is it inflammatory or is it non-inflammatory? Okay. So that's my first decision process. Is it inflammatory or is it non-inflammatory? Now, essentially, if I'm going to call it inflammatory, then I don't want to see any other neoplastic sort of criteria or malignant criteria there as well. So, you know, squamous cell carcinoma on the nose of a white cat. Yeah. Okay. There's probably going to be neutrophils because it's ulcerated, potentially infected, but I'm still going to see naughty malignant looking cells as well. Okay. Inflammation there and nothing else that concerns me, essentially. So then, okay, well, I'm dealing with an inflammatory process. So, so qualify that. So inflammatory mm. process, so obviously no cells that you go, what the fuck is that yep. thing? Yep. Um, yep. <laughs> but, but what are we looking at? For what, what, are, what are your qualifiers for inflammatory? Yeah, so inflammatory, well, inflammatory cells in numbers that are higher than, say, any blood contamination that's present would suggest it's just due to the hemodilution of the slide. You know, a few neutrophils and blood contamination, right, I'm going to ignore them. And then, okay, well, no, there's too many neutrophils here. Or I'm seeing plasma cells and macrophages and things like that. Well, that's, you know, if there's blood contamination there, they're not in blood and routine contaminant. Then textbooks would then say, okay, it's inflammatory. Okay, is it septic or non-septic? So basically, you know, is it infectious or non-infectious? I reckon that's a half-done job. And I'd go a different way for say, okay, it's inflammatory. What sort of inflammation is it? Because then that really changes my differentials. So if it's neutrophilic inflammation, then I'm going to spend time, I'd even get that oil from wherever I hit it from and, you know, look for bacteria. If I still say, if there's bacteria there, quite often you'll see it on by 40 anyway. And again, cytology doesn't always give us a definitive answer. Sometimes the cytology answer is, well, what do I do next? Mm. You know, do I culture this? Do I excise it and do histopath? Do I leave it because it looks benign and you know, it's not bothering the dog? So neutrophilic inflammation, if, particularly if I still got the animal there, I'm probably going to look at culturing that if it's something right. that I'm worried about is an infectious process going on. Um, granulomatous, so you know, lots of macrophages, foamy-looking macrophages, vacuolated cytoplasm, or pyogranulomatous, mixture of neutrophils and macrophages. They sort of have similar etiologies, so foreign body-type reaction, furunculosis, you know, ruptured follicles, follicular cyst that's ruptured and inflamed, the keratin has a foreign body-type response. It's also something where I'm going to be thinking about you know, yes, bacteria, but then maybe something else other than bacteria, mycobacterial infection, um, fungi, you know, toxoplasma, um, you know, if you're dealing with a, you know, BAL or a lung aspirate, something like that. So not just a routine, if you like, bacterial infection. Um, eosinophilic, allergic hypersensitivity type reactions, um, parasite, maybe fungal, maybe. If I see eosinophils, I'm going to spend time looking for mast cells. Okay. We see Mast cell tumors that can be greater than 80, 90% eosinophils with the mast cells there as well. They mm. talk to each other via cytokines and things like that. So qu quite often a mast cell tumor, some mast cell tumors are predominantly eosinophils as far as the cell population that's there. So if you see eosinophils, I'm always going to make sure, you know, are there any mast cells there? So if it's granulomatous, pyogranulomatous, I might not just do a bacterial culture. I might also do a fungal culture and an acid fast or a mycobacterial culture as well, okay? So it might dictate what I do next based on the type of inflammation that we've got. That's really useful. Well, yeah. 
Yeah, I was just like, is it bacteria or bacteria? Yeah, septic, non-septic. I, I don't like it. We can do better. Yeah. Mm. I'm pretty sure I learned that from you, Brad, when I was at uni. So I'll take that as a win, Gerardo. <laughs> I, I didn't know anyone learn anything from me while I went to you. So we've gone through inflammation, inflammatory t- t- different types of cells. I always loved the fact you when you threw in the to, to think what's next. Yeah. Um, sometimes you get these like big inflammatory cells. We just like, is that neoplastic or not neoplastic? You know, they're huge. They're kind of big nucleus in them and stuff as well. How would you differentiate? How would you then go to non-inflammatory from here? Well, what you're probably talking about is, you know, multinucleated giant cells. Okay. So you might see that particularly in like foreign body reactions, ruptured follicles and things like that. In some instances, you just can't be sure. But as soon as there's something there that goes, hang on a minute, that worries me. Well, then it's, you know, lab pathologist time or potentially histo time to say, but I'm going to do histo, but I'm also going to take a fresh tissue biopsy deep down from this lesion for fungal culture, for mycobacterial culture, for bacterial culture. So I'm not just doing my histo and then the histo comes back in a couple of days or however long it takes to then say, oh no, it's inflammatory. And you know, oh, now I want a culture. Okay, dog back, whatever you have to go through. So it might, you've done the cyto already, go, okay, well, it's inflammatory, but I'm worried about those cells. So I'm going to take some for histo and some for culture. Either there's no inflammation or there's inflammation and something else that's concerning me, Mm. well, then we're sort of down the non-inflammatory path, okay? So, yeah, there's inflammation there or there's no inflammation. Now I want to know what else is going on. So for all intents and purposes, we're going to have then, you know, neoplastic or a non-neoplastic type process can be a little bit academic really because a non-neoplastic is, you know, say something like we might, you get your diagnosis of a, you know, fibrous hematoma or a fibroadnexal hematoma, which essentially is a mass, but it's just not a neoplasm. It's just basically a disorganized proliferation of normal constituents of the dermis. Calcinosis circumscripta, for instance, is a mass. It's not a neoplasm. Okay. So we can, that they exist, but essentially once we're in that category, the next important question is, well, is it malignant or is it benign? Because then that dictates, what do I do next? Do I leave it? Do I take it off? If I take it off, how much of the animal do I have to get, take with it? That's a really penny-dropping moment. Gerardo pointed it out again, but that, I think it's about expectations because I kind of, you do even A and you go, I want my diagnosis from this, but I like seeing it as a no, this is going to help me plan. That that section, exactly what you said there about, well, it's this kind of inflammation. I kind of know the things I'm looking for and these are the tests. I'm not just going to send it off to you. I'm going to say, okay, so it could, for example, mean I'm not even going to send you that slide. I'm going to go, yeah, there's weird stuff there. I'm just going to get my biopsy now and send you the biopsy and culture it at the same time. Yeah, and that's between you and the owner and money and all, all yeah. those sorts of questions get thrown into it. But ideally, this is what I think it is. Do you get it confirmed or not? Well, that just comes back to how comfortable you are in your decision and, and what you have seen and where you want to go next. And the other thing too is it might not necessarily what I do next. I mean, if we see an inflammatory lesion, pyogranulomatous, and now I see crypto, well, I have an etiological diagnosis. I don't have to do anything else. I've mm. got a cryptococcal granuloma, I've got a cryptococcal rhinitis, I've got a cryptococcal pyogranulomatous lymphadenitis, whatever, wherever I went for my sample. Okay, I'm going to get a baseline LCAT titer, and I'm going to treat my cat for crypto. You know, so it's not just a way just to say, okay, well, what do I do next? Sometimes you can get your etiological yeah. diagnosis cytologically, and you're done. So you're talking about, okay, should I go... Sample that could be infectious, right? It's neutrophilic or it's pyogranulomatous, right? And I need to get a sample for culture. Do you just get an FNA and you spray it in a yellow container or do you get an FNA and you spray it on a culture swab stick and stick it in the gel? Like, how do you get enough sample from an FNA? 
Yeah, you could do both. So it comes down to how much sample you get. So if you can aspirate the material out, put it on the individual swab and then into the transport medium, if you can get enough sample that you can put it in, say, a sterile urine container that you you know normally send a urine culture for, then you can put that material in there and send it off to the lab. For things like these atypical infections, it's always the more material like we get, then the more likely we have of culturing what's there. Some of these are, can either be, you know, fastidious or slow growing and we need one as much material as we can get as opposed to just putting a bit on the end of a swab and hoping that that grows so even a deep fresh tissue biopsy a chunk of the tissue of you know those cat with those weeping fatty ventral abdominal type lesions get a nice big chunk of that tissue if you can and then send that but again if you can aspirate a lot of that material out and send that off for them we can Lab can send that off. Oh, well. I, I just assumed when you said culture that you need to get a, a sample. I didn't realize that you, so you can. So it is worth it sometimes if you just have a few aspirates to try and culture that. I didn't even Absolutely, that. yeah. yeah okay. And it depends how much you can get out. If you can yeah. get enough material out, then yeah, send that in for culture. Yeah, because I've often sent it, but I've never been sure that actually you guys can use it. It's like, hey, this is the best that I can get from this deep ass, you know, lesion in the middle of this cat's abdomen and it looks a bit gross, but don't exactly want to do an egg slab on it. And I'm like, I, I'd send it up on a, a swab stick and, and stuff grows, but I get surprised by it and I just wasn't too sure if that was a thing, you know? And again, particularly if you could see stuff there, well then, yeah, absolutely send that. Um, then that's going to dictate what antimicrobial therapy, you know, you can dictate on culture results as opposed to, a well, let's just start with this and see how it goes. I can see bacteria. Well, you can see bacteria. Most times you can grow bacteria. A practical question that I've never understood. I, I know you're not a microbiologist, but your culture samples that have to go in the fridge, that just to me is counterintuitive. You want shit to grow. So why don't you want to leave it out in the nice tropical heat so that it can freaking grow before it gets to the lab? Why does it have to go in the fridge? Well, you only yeah. want to grow the stuff that's supposed to grow. You don't want to grow the kitchen sink and anything else that might be there as well. So, yeah, but you've got, um, it, got it sterile. Yeah, you, you, most times it is. So there's there's medium in there that, that basically helps support the bacterial longevity and, and, and livability. So therefore, basically, that's the right specimen. And also, when they're set up for culture, you get scant, moderate, heavy growth and things like that. So essentially, uh. we can work out significance as well to say, well, okay, from that sample... How heavy is it grown, et cetera. You, you can't do that for things like, say, a blood culture bottle, okay, that you might take, you know, I'm worried about a septic arthritis. And so the preference there would be to send a bit of joint fluid in a blood culture bottle as opposed to on a swab or something like that, because often we're dealing with low numbers of organisms. So we've got to give them a bit of help. So we need enrichment media to then try and get these low numbers of bacteria that potentially might be present in, in a septic joint to, to grow in those instances. And those blood culture bottles don't go in the fridge because we do want any bacteria there. To have a party. Exactly right. <laughs> and and make friends. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but like urine samples, uh, FNA, swab sticks and things like that. Fridge. Fridge. Yep. That's been a point of contention. Now I've got clarity around that. I thing, know. Right? I know that's what they say, but I'm always like, no, that makes no sense. <laughs> what what happens it? if it's like, okay, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, think we, I feel like a time frame, time frame. Well, I feel like, like we're going to get later. sidetracked, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're getting sidetracked. I just, yeah, well, I'll leave, leave that point there. Okay, good. <laughs> Let's be a micro podcast. I was going to say, we'll get a microbiologist on here and ask all those sort of questions. Uh, yeah. Quick question. You, you talked about the stains that you guys use. Most practices only have. Uh, quick, and again at the zoo because we looked at a lot of stuff ourselves we had other stains as well is it worth it for a normal practice to have other stains uh, uh, on their shelf or 
are we going to do the bulk of our work fine with the diff quick stain? I think bulk bulk of the work is going to be fine with diff quick stain. Okay. Is the honest answer. I know some places used to have toluidine blue stain in a syringe, and toluidine blue is a super vital stain. Stains mast cell granules really well and things like that. So I guess it's one where people are worried about a mast cell tumor. For instance, the problem with the super vital stains is there's no longevity. Basically, once it dries out, it's gone. And I'd always say you, you should be keeping your cyto slides if you look at them. You should have a little repository of your slides that you should keep for a period of time to then go back. You know, if, hey, I diagnosed this three weeks ago or a month ago or whatever, and it isn't working out, well, you've still got the slides. Mm. You can send them to the lab at a later date. You can't if they're in the bin. I have a whole heap of my locker in a disorganized fashion with oil covered all over them. Unlabeled with no name. And so now you have no idea where they came from yeah. or, or who they came from. Just don't leave them lying on the bench because that's a sure way of really pissing up your nerves. <laughs> yeah, they're in the bin. Yeah, that's right. So we talked about differentiating those big angry cells from neoplastic cells. What What is your, what was it, R is, criteria for neoplasia? How do okay, we decide so, this, okay, is a, this one's bad? That's right. We're in the neoplastic category. So let's think, okay, so benign or malignant is, is my next question. Okay, okay. So benign, basically, easy one is the cells look like each other. Okay. So that's good. They're homogenous or monomorphic. So they, they lack a lot of variability in what they look like. Quite often they're a smallish type cell. You know, when we describe things, we have to use a size marker. So I most people tend to use a red blood cell. So you would read in your reports, you know, one to 1.2 RBC nuclear diameter. Okay. Mm. So by description, I've already said one, that cell's not very big. And two, they don't vary too much because they're one to 1.2 okay. red cells, nuclear diameter. They tend to have an even staining chromatin. So the chromatin across the nucleus is evenly stained as opposed to darker in some areas. So okay. clumpy or stippled, things like that. We tend to not see nucleoli, or if we do, we don't see many and they're small, okay? And they also tend to look like the cell they came from. Um, so a good example, that'd be a sebaceous adenoma. Not only do the cells all look like each other, they look like a well-differentiated sebaceous cell, small nucleus, a lot of cytoplasm with lipid, you know, clear vacuoles in it. So a low nuclear to cytoplasmic ratio, small nuclei, no prominent nucleoli, et cetera. Benign apocrine gland tumor, you know, small cuboidal to short columnar cells, all looking like each other, okay. things like that. So the converse is then the malignant criteria. So big cells, macrocytosis, um, and variability with how they appear. Some are round, some are more angular. They're not just sort of carbon copies of each other. Higher nuclear to cytoplasmic ratio, prominent, maybe multiple nucleoli, the chromatin's clumped as opposed to nice and even. Hyperchromasia of the cytoplasm, so blueness to the cytoplasm is a particular criteria of malignancy, particularly for epithelial cells. Frequent mitoses, you know, more rapidly dividing, so tends to be a malignant feature things like nuclear molding, anisocytosis variation in cell size, anisocaryosis variation in nucleic size, word of the day is anisonucleoliosis, okay, variation in the size of the nucleoli. Some are bigger than some are smaller. So not only are they there, are they multiple, but they're varying in size, okay? So lots of big words that I should be able to spell. Um, but at the same time, one on their own doesn't mean malignant, okay? Mm -hmm. So the way I was sort of taught when I 
was going through uni and also when I went back and did my training was it's like opening a bank account. If I want to open a bank account, I need a hundred points of ID. So I need my birth certificate. I need my Medicare card and whatever else you need, um, student ID, whatever. So your criteria of malignancy, I want three or more of those things that I've rattled off to then say, is this malignant? Okay. Yeah. They're big. Yeah. They vary. And is cytosis and is karyosis, prominent multiple nucleoli and I'm seeing mitoses, et cetera. So the more of those criteria of malignancy I have and or the more obvious those criteria are, well, then I can go from, oh, suspect, possible, probable, yep, this is malignant. Okay, so there's, you know, some subtleties. It might go, oh, these worry me a little bit. Could it be a sarcoma? Could it be a carcinoma? Yeah, but there's only a couple of those criteria versus it's got eight of them and it's got eight in spades. It's malignant. Now that you talked about the difference between benign and malignant, can you grade it on cytology? Are there some neoplastic processes, mast cells, where you can grade them on cytology counts? Yeah, so with caution and intrepidation will be my answer. So there's definitely papers, basically cytologic grading of canine mast cell tumors based on things used for the, the cupel two-tiered histo cutaneous mast cell tumor grading. And so they found there's definitely aspects to the tumors that could indicate a higher versus lower grade cytologically. There's other papers been coming out more recently where they've done similar things for, you know, soft tissue sarcomas are their criteria that we can see cytology, cytologically, that histologically might then give us an indication of higher or lower grade. So I'd say, can we grade them? No. Okay. Can we use features? To suggest, would it be a higher or a lower grade? Yes, based on publications that have come out recently and some, some a bit longer. 2016 doesn't seem like that long ago, but that's when the Marcel tumor sort of cytology grading paper came out. Well, let's make it practical for decision making. So I do my FNA and I see lots of angry mast cells. That's one of the easier ones that we can do in-house. Is there any point me sending that slide to you or do I just go, yeah, that's must sell, let's cut it out and send the histo to Brett? Short answer is you probably won't gain anything further cytologically okay. if you've already decided, yes, it's a mast cell tumor. Yes, yeah. it needs to come off. Spend the money and effort okay. in surgery, taking the mast cell tumor off with appropriate margins. Stab the regional lymph node for cytology if you want to send some cytology. Let's stage it as opposed to, yes, it's a mast cell tumor. I want it checked. The ones we probably would be getting are ones where I'm seeing some mast cells, but not many. Do you think it's a mast cell tumor versus is it an inflammatory type reaction um, with mast cells present? So they're ones that might be worth getting checked. But yeah, I think realistically, I'm trying to talk myself out of any work, but if you have made a decision cytologically that it's a mast cell tumor, you're happy it's a mast cell tumor, then... You know, there's, there's a patient and owner with a wallet at the other end of it. So spend their money on what mm. needs to happen next rather than, you know, spend it on hematology, FNA of its regional lymph node, going to the surgery and the histopath. Mm. That that comment is great. We had an episode of, on mast cell tumors with an oncologist and that's something I didn't used to do is, is to go and aspirate the lymph nodes. You mm. just focus on the mass, but it's such an obvious thing, but it makes so much sense to say, well, aspirate that to make sure that that's clean. Yeah. And, mm. and if and when they get referred, well, then we get aspirates of spleen and liver, you know, particularly if there's any subtle abnormalities of spleen and liver on, on ultrasound. So that's the next level of staging as well that they, they potentially might be doing it. So am I done with my job in clinic? 
So I go, yep, I, I've got an idea what it is. So I'm going to send these off or not send off. Are we finished in-house or is there anything more? That no, we well, I guess about? you've decided benign or malignant. Well, then we can say, can we do better? Can we go further? So for both the benign cells and all the malignant cells, can I put them into a basket? Is it epithelial versus spindle versus round cell tumors? So they tend to be the categories. I think I'll leave all those decisions to you, mate. It's very interesting, but I'm right. <laughs> that's where I tap out and go, yeah, let's send this to the professionals. Yeah. yeah, but again, if you get to benign or malignant, then I think that what do I do next? So that's where you're at. And again, if you've got good cellular samples, I think it's malignant. That's when probably should go to a pathologist. Do they agree with me before I'm going to, you know, excise this dog? however large mass or is this an amputation or is this a yeah, you know, yeah. what, whatever else depending on, on on where it is and things like that mm. so i get to that point right and then i start googling images and stuff trying to picture match is picture matching helpful well that's what you'd be doing if you had a textbook rather than google you'd sort of looking picture match to see what it is the other thing too is remember the friends they keep okay so We've already talked about eosinophils and mast cells, okay? So if I see round cells and I'm seeing eosinophils as well, then I'm thinking, you know, again, if it's not obvious, this could be an agranular mast cell tumor. So either it's already degranulated or it's a, you know, malignant version that is is not very well granulated. So if I'm seeing eosinophils, mast cells are going to be on my radar for a round cell tumor. And lymphoma, okay, tends to have eosinophils in some degree as well. If it's a histiocytoma, Quite often, I'll see small lymphocytes around because we just, I just said that T cell, cell mediated immune system is what comes in and wipes out the histiocyte. So, depending on where it is in the sort of timeline of the histiocytoma, if it's a young histiocytoma, there probably won't be many lymphocytes there yet. But if it's way down the end stage version, quite often it'll just look like a lymphocytic inflammatory process with some histiocytes there because that's, that's what's there now. It'll, you better take it off before. It, takes itself away. So again, yeah, the company they keep might give you some indication. And then obviously histopath, there's more immunostains and things like that available. In cytology, we certainly have immunocytochemistry available to us as well. So we, we more use that for, yes, this is a lymphoma. The next step is, okay, well, we can now do immunostains on these cytology slides to Say, is it a T or a B cell lymphoma? Okay, mm. which has prognostic indications and also what sort of chemotherapy you, you're going to throw at the animal based on its um, immunophenotype. Are there good resources to have next to your microscope in your in-house lab to help you with these things? Like, is there, a, is there a specific textbook or website or anything that would a help? A lockbox to put your oil in would be my <laughs> first one. And, um, yeah, definitely. So probably, you know, one called Cal and Tyler, Diagnostic Cytology of the Dog and Cat. Um, and there's also uh, Raskin and Meyer, Diagnostic Cytology, again, I think of the dog and cat. So they're two good textbooks I would have in clinic and that there's plenty of others out there as well. But okay. I think it's certainly one with good pictures, I think is great. And one with flow charts, I think is always a good one. Yeah. Do you send some really cool pictures? I'll put those in the show notes if people want to head to the website and Check out the pictures. Which which one? Like one is Cal is like 260 bucks and looks like if I read that, I'm going to become a specialist pathologist. Um, the other <laughs> one's like 90 bucks, like the manual of diagnostic cytology. Like is that, which is a bit more user-friendly, I suppose. Like, I, I, look, I'll be, I'd spend the money and get Cal and Tyler is the honest answer. And it's lots of pictures, not too verbose, good flow charts, and it's nicely 
packed up into organ systems and things like that as well. The other thing you can do is you go, oh, I don't know what I'm looking at, da-da-da. Well, look at it. Make notes. Write down what you think it was. Then when you send it off to the Mm. lab, see what they saw and go, okay, well, that's what I was looking at or I didn't see that. Okay, did I keep a slide in-house versus send everything off You know, and, and things like that? So. Your pathology report can help train you to, to what you're looking at cytologically as well. So you don't necessarily always just have to, you know, hey, Google and textbook your way out of an issue. I like that. I, I do that. It's That's kind of fun. Like I'll always send them off. I'm always going to get a pathologist's opinion on it. Uh, but I do like having my own diagnosis and then comparing. The lesson in that for me is it's I'm so often wrong that it's definitely still worth sending it Keep sending them off then. Are we done? Brent, is there anything we're missing out on? Not really. I'd probably only say also, you know, looking down a microscope all day isn't everyone's idea of fun. So that's probably why you're where you are and I'm where I am. But I, I, you should have an open line of communication with your pathologists and whatever lab you're using, you should be able to think, look, I got the report back. Well, I wasn't sure what they meant by this comment or what they saw. I thought I saw something different. Then you should be ringing them and, and just having a chat to say, you know, what, what should I do better next time? What should I do differently next time? So you can learn as you go. You should have a good rapport with your pathologists. We're, we're part of the jigsaw yeah. fixing or you know putting back together. So we need to interdigitate with how we attack these things. What I see cytologically might not fit what you're seeing clinically. Or yeah. you know I might have a list of differentials that with a bit more clinical information, I can reshuffle my differentials in a different order based on what you do or don't have. So. Yeah. Don't send slides with a blank. I, you know, I'll probably get a couple a week where I'm lucky to know if it's a dog or a cat. I, I definitely don't know what's been sampled. What I'm seeing at my description part of that report won't change. Yeah. My interpretation and my comments might change based on all the information yeah. I have. Okay. So um, give that information. It's essential. Yeah. Dorado, you should stop doing that, mate. You're annoying, Brad. Start filling out the fucking <laughs> pathology form. Just testing how good he is. <laughs> I get a bit lazy though. I don't label every single slide with the patient's name and all that kind of stuff. But I do yeah, it's, label label the slides, not the slide holders. Beck might have gone through some of that sort of stuff. At least a name, put the animal's name on there. Yeah, because slide holders get unpacked on a bench, and their slides come out on on a bench. And so, it, if the name's on the slide holder, not the slide, or a slide holder pops open and a slide comes out, and oh, I don't know where it comes from. Where the hell did that come from? Or you know, if you're going to sample more than one site, put each site relevant on the slides because, you know, one's a lipoma, one's a carcinoma, but you haven't labeled your sites on the slide. So back to the dog, you go to work out which one needs to be taken off or which one can be left alone. So, yeah, there is little things to help us help you, I guess. Awesome. Great. Thank you so awesome. much for your time. That was really insightful. Like I said, we could have have just talked about the blue lens and still <laughs> teach a lot of people a lot of things. You know those conversations that you have at conferences back in the days when we still had big vet conferences when people are chatting to the lecturers and asking questions and you hear things like this isn't really in the books but here's what I think. It's in those kinds of conversations that the best nuggets of wisdom appear. The nitty-gritty real-life details that you can only get from years and years of experience. And it's exactly those kinds of conversations that we try to emulate on the VetVault Clinical Podcasts. We don't want lectures. We want to hear about the challenges, the tips, the stuff-ups, the this is how I do it.
go to vvn.supercast.net to join in the conversation.